our legal system does not necessarily have justice as a criteria or a, an evaluator as to its effectiveness. We had things which were legal at the time, then the moral appetite amongst the population changed and you had things like the abolition movement and so on, which pushes for these things to change and then the law changes. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, everybody. I'm Becky Anderson, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. We're going to be talking about ethical leadership for lawyers and racial justice. I think lawyers are in a really unusual and unique situation in that they are both reluctant to take sides because our entire profession teaches us that we are to be neutral, we are to work in the best interests of our client, but it is unseemly for us to be political. And yet, and yet, we work intimately with a number of different systems and institutions, both commercial and criminal, which are institutionally racist. And it is a very uncomfortable position to be in, recognising what those systems are doing and the effects that they're having because as lawyers our day-to-day -day work is giving effect to those systems, dealing with the problems that they throw up very intimately and yet feeling like one has to be very neutral, one has to be politically neutral because that is the fair and correct thing to do. And what I wanted to explore in this episode and to really challenge lawyers to think about is if you are complicit in a system which is unjust, do you not have a duty to pursue ethical leadership? You cannot be neutral in an unjust system. The cross-examination. It's important to name the fact that I am white and my voice should have less primacy right now. I want to really amplify the voices of my two amazing panellists, who are both fantastic black thought leaders. Firstly, Abimbola Johnson, criminal barrister with 25 Bedford Row, winner of the 2018 Diversity Legal Awards Rising Star Chambers category and a finalist in the 2018 Black British Business Awards. And I'm also going to be speaking with Carlos M. Brown, Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer of Dominion Energy. Thank you both so much for coming to talk to me today. I really wanted to kick off our discussion by talking about the current relationship between the legal profession and racial justice generally and, and how the legal profession are helping or, or hindering movement towards a racially just society. Something that I think is really important for us to um, note is that the legal profession itself encompasses such a wide range of professions and specialisms. Um, so, for example, speaking from a UK perspective, which is where I'm based, we have two sides of the profession. We've got solicitors and we have barristers. We have the massive corporations uh, down to small high street firms, down to individual self-employed um, barristers. And I think that in terms of whether or not the legal profession is actually focused on ideas like racial justice, I think it's really difficult to um, 
say that from the perspective of just looking at the legal profession as a whole without breaking it down into its smaller constituent parts. Um, as somebody who practices in the criminal justice system, what I would say is I think that day to day, the main concern really is just focusing on making sure that you are meeting deadlines, that you are meeting disclosure requests, that you are meeting trial preparation, um, that you are getting your client on bail if you possibly can, and that you're making sure that they are participating in their process as much as possible and that their personhood is respected in that way. And I don't honestly think that there is a specific focus on racial justice in terms of the day-to-day -day mechanisms of the criminal justice system. And that's really recognised when you look at some of the reports which have come out over the past few decades, culminating, for example, in the 2017 David Lammy Review, which highlights the extent of racial injustice that mm. is endemic within the criminal justice system, because it's not a system which was built on the idea of ensuring fairness across racial lines and that in fact when you look at nearly every aspect of the criminal justice system it only enhances racial disparity uh, from the level of stop and search which is disproportionately used on black people through to the amount of black people that you see remanded in custody and serving custodial sentences i think in fact the the one area that he found that there wasn't racial inequality uh, was in the mechanism of jury verdicts and we'd have seen very recently because of well under the excuse of the covid uh, pandemic that the government is actually even actively considering um, undermining the use of jury systems mm. um, in verdicts. So to be completely honest, I, I don't think in the criminal justice system that there is a neat relationship between the legal profession and racial justice. I think that we get very caught up in our day to days and we operate within a system that ultimately does not serve people equally along racial lines at all. Carlos, what's your kind of the view from the US, do you think? One of the things that, that I think is important to, to appreciate is that the legal system in the West is not designed to ensure just outcomes. Uh, it was designed to ensure due process. Um, and due process uh, arguably does not consider uh, the differentiation or distinction of those that come to the justice system. So uh, the fact that there are racial inequities, economic disparities that exist in society that impact and clothe how someone is presented to the justice system does not get considered. And so and in the American journey, I'm not sure about in, in the UK system, you know, the indigency of, uh, of a defendant, whether or not they're entitled to counsel, um, their own uh, uh, awareness and, and, and uh, capability of navigating the system were all things that had to evolve. And although it is better now than it had been, uh, you know, 20, 30, 50, uh, 100 years ago, the availability of pro bono services and those types of issues, uh, the truth is that our system is not designed, nor was it ever intended to uh, provide um, uh, outcomes or procedures that take into consideration how individuals arrive at the system. And as a result, we know that we get desperate outcomes that the legal system uh, in the U.S., 
specifically produces worse outcomes on both the criminal and civil side for African-American participants um, based upon a whole host of societal reasons, but also in how that system is applied um, and manifested when uh, when it's accessed. Um, and so one question that has to be that has to be raised is, you know, is the notion of blind justice, right, truly in the interest of all people, both minority, um, African-American uniquely, uh, is that really the system that produces the best justice? Um, and, and there's a lot of tension there because, uh, you know, in the U.S., there's this notion that we want justice to be blind so it does not consider wealth versus the poor. But in truth, the the blindness or the uh, not taking that into consideration uh, disadvantages the poor uh, and those who are of minority backgrounds and those who don't come from positions of resource. Yeah, Carlos, I think about this all the time. So, for example, I think we can actually go even further. I think I think the two of us are being slightly polite in the way that we're <laughs> pitching our opinions. If, if To be perfectly frank, actually, the criminal justice system in particular, if we were to really look at it starkly, it is built to protect people who are middle class, who mm. um, have very kind of set um, status, who have stability. And it's actually built to have a harder and harsher effect on those who have not, because the idea of it being a deterrent and so on, and so on the actual basis of it, when you, when you look at the philosophy behind it, is to say to people, you may be wanting in certain areas and therefore you are tempted to steal or you mm. are tempted to resort to these actions and so what we're going to do is we're going to make that choice um, more difficult by saying to you that the consequence of you doing that will be worse than the consequence of you going without that particular item and so you know going back to what you were saying Carlos about this idea of blind justice it's something that that I have to say, it's starting to really grate on me because, you know, when you're taught about uh, the mens rea, the, the mental element of crime, you're taught about the fact that you have these elements of recklessness, intention, and so on, and that the idea is that crime is supposed to capture really um, aspects of decisions which are made freely by people. But how free is your decision can, when you don't take into account a person's difference in terms of their social background? If you are somebody who is middle class, who is well-educated, who has really strong employment prospects, um, who has a stable family, who has a stable upbringing and all of those pillars and um, areas of comfort available to you and then you choose to commit a crime uh, surely actually if you think it through logically the punishment for that person should be harsher than a person who was already in a backward step or already in a backward position where they were surrounded by poverty where they knew that their job prospects were going to be really low where they were genuinely struggling to make ends meet and as a result of that that partly influenced their decision to go out and take something that didn't belong to them. Um, surely the person in the latter scenario, uh, their decision is more understandable than the middle class person who's made the decision to commit the crime. But the reality is that when you get to mitigation, if you can point out to a judge this person's from a stable and loving family, that they uh, have all of this like kind of already established support network available to them, that they have a job offer from 
you know a family friend um to work in a very highly reputable company the judge is actually more likely to look more kindly upon that person and think well you're not going to be as much of a menace to society i say in parentheses um and they're more likely to receive a lighter sentence it's actually quite perverse um when you break it down but like you say the processes are there to say well that's not what we're looking at we're looking at whether or not this person is going to pose a threat to other members of the public by potentially committing another offence, they have a higher chance of recidivism and therefore we're going to give them a harsher sentence. And if you were really thinking about equity, if you're really thinking about justice and meeting um, the causes of criminality and, and solving the causes of criminality, a lot of the processes that we have would work the other way around. What I find so interesting about what you've just said, Abby, is how close it runs to a lot of the reading that I've been doing about arguments concerning defunding the police in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not really sure what sort of conversations we're having in the UK about about similar issues. I certainly have not heard the concept of defunding the police in the context of the UK, but it it sounds like a very, very similar thing. Fund social welfare programs, um, fund um, mental health services, fund housing services, fund those first. Yeah, I mean, I think that conversation is definitely picking up. Um, I don't know if you saw, but for example, recently, Black Lives Matter UK has started to pick up on the idea of defunding the police. It's been quite controversial, I think, for a start, because people don't really understand what the phrase means. They hear defunding the police and they think it means taking money away from the police, leaving the police bereft of of kind of the, the basic funding that they need to operate and then putting it into other places. Whereas what it actually means is if you focus the idea on that we should reach a point where the police are no longer needed as much as we do now. How do we get to that point? You get to that point by proportionately funding other areas um, at, at a higher rate than you do the police force. You would look at, if we look at all of the areas that the police have started to step into, um, I don't know if you see this stateside, Carlos, but um, certainly I definitely see a lot of my clients have underlying mental health, drug, um, uh, issues and vulnerabilities uh, and it's almost like um, quite dishearteningly predictable uh, their pathway towards criminality uh, you see that they have been excluded from school you see that they themselves have been victims of crime you see that they have been taken into care um, you see that they have struggled with um, mental health and um they've struggled with these addictions and then you look into what was available to them in their local authority areas and the answer is very little um you know we don't have a lot of rehabilitation uh, programs available to people we don't have a lot of youth services available to people anymore um, we don't have a lot of after school programs available to people uh, we don't have a lot of community based um policing in terms of actually just having a person who's in a position of authority that you can speak to to help you mediate around issues which are happening on your doorstep Uh, and instead we have this quite combative uh, relationship with the police because they're brought into all of these situations where they're dealing with people who are vulnerable and a vulnerable person doesn't mean that they 
of somebody who's just sat there waiting for a hug and that they're really friendly. A vulnerable person can be somebody who is dangerous because of their vulnerability. And so if you call in the police into a scenario like that, it can escalate very quickly and it can become violent and it can worsen the situation. And so, yeah, so a lot of the discussion around defunding the police, which has um, kind of grown out of stateside discussion, I think is very, very applicable uh, to the UK. I can give you an example, a specific example in the criminal law. Uh, which is that if you have somebody who is so unwell that they are found not to have any um, mental element um, in terms of their criminal liability, so they only have an actus reus trial, so in other words, they're found um, not to be responsible at all for the mental element of their crime. There's only three punishments then which are available to them if they're found to have done the act, and that is that they either receive a hospital order that they receive a community order, which is a mental health community order, or they receive an absolute discharge. So if you have somebody who is so unwell that they cannot be held criminally liable for an act that have been found by a jury to have committed the act, a lot of the resources are such now that there are no probation or mental health services that are available to provide the community order. Um, to people with mental health issues. But that person may not be so unwell that they warrant um, being sent to hospital under a hospital order. And so instead, they're given absolute discharges. So you have these people who are specifically identified as needing intervention, identified as needing a specific type of intervention, which is community-based, which would require resources, having a psychiatrist, having somebody from perhaps probation, uh, supervising them, looking after them, them, checking in on them, helping them with things like housing, education, employment and so on. But instead, the system is so chronically underfunded in that area that they are simply given an absolute discharge and left to their own devices. And that's actually, again, built into the system. So using Carlos's terminology, the G process is followed. You've given them one of those three available punishments, but the funding is such that the second available punishment or, or um, rather rehabilitative um, uh, conclusion is no longer available and so you just leave them on their own to inevitably probably go out and do it again. Right so we we see and in, in, in actually for uh, probably the last 25 years have been trying to refocus uh, the justice system on this issue of people management. I think it was acknowledged uh, even in my local city in Richmond, Virginia, when they rebuilt the jail, I mean, they call it the Justice Center, um, that the jail was too big because it was essentially being used to house people that suffered from mental illness, addiction issues, and because there was no other recourse in the system for them, they would simply store and house and manage these individuals in the jail system where they were not receiving these additional services in order to either heal them or uh, give them the life skills and op alternatives such that they would not be involved. And, and part of that has to do to, I want to take a step back to the uh, the act of criminalization. I mean, you know, this is not so much about the police, and I, and I think sometimes we we look at the symptom, and we forget that there is actually a disease, um, and the disease has been that we have had this very aggressive move to decriminal to criminalize 
uh, you know, a multiplicity of activities mm-hmm. uh, mm. that, uh, in fact, arguably did not have to be criminalized, but but for the management and 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 to your point, Abby, earlier, in order to make others feel safe and comfortable and secure, we're going to criminalize, you know, petty drug use. Uh, and other activities in such a way that you can simply remove these people yeah. from our sphere, from our vi- view, from our vision, to allow those uh, who are, you know, middle class and otherwise uh, engaged in, in the markets and commerce in our communities to feel comfortable and safe and un- un- unfettered, and thereby not addressing what are the root causes of those behaviors, other than. Uh, you know those people being simply malicious, vicious, or what have you, and 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 I guess it, it, again it goes back to the substance of the system. Uh, you know, in, in the U.S., you know it is it is well documented. I don't know the the, the U.K. system that you know policing has a has a great correlation with management of of of, of blacks, right? I mean, of, of black people, mm. meaning that yeah. uh, in order to protect. Again, uh, middle class and upper middle class uh, white European Americans. Um, the notion of let's criminalize this activity. That way, we can, you know, remove the, what are deep threats from the public view, and we can allow folks to feel, in theory, safer. Yeah. And that goes back to uh, the adoption of the Black Codes after the, you know, some of the rebellions that occurred, Nat Turner, Gabriel Prosser, and others, uh, and it and it persists. Uh, anytime that there is a spike in crime or violence, uh, there is this notion that somehow uh, we should compromise the civil liberties uh, that others uh, uh, possess in, in America. Uh, they don't apply necessarily in urban or black communities. There was actually a recent case in the Fourth Circuit here in, in, in Richmond, Virginia, where you know one of the justices made a comment and he said, why is it that whenever, in order for black communities to deem to be protected, there is this assumption that they must give up liberties? When fundamental to the American experiment is that, you know, you don't give up liberty in order to uh, pursue peace. At the end of the day, you protect liberties at all costs, except when it applies to black communities and black people. So I think it goes to the heart and core of our system that a that, that the criminal justice system has been used to manage people and uniquely a very deliberate and expressed focus in, in, in years past to manage uh, blacks. I mean, in, in the South, one of the ways that they allowed, they were able to continue kind of the sharecropping feudal culture that occurred uh, after, you know, slaves were, were freed was through uh, the again criminalization of activities that allowed free blacks to be convicted of petty crimes, mm-hmm. given hard labor, mm-hmm. then lent out to these same farmers or plantation owners that had been their enslavers yeah. uh, previously, and thus you build uh, this uh, this this you know you guys may be familiar with the book The New Jim Crow, um, yeah so. We know that that, that 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 all correlates, and it 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 manifests itself even today in our legal system. Uh, the, the other thing, there's another point that I, I wanted to make, which is that uh, you know we have in both countries a legal system 
that is not really a justice system, meaning that we we allow for there to be due process. And if you are afforded due process and you are treated, uh, given the rights to uh, you know, confront your accuser or your complainant and then to react. And if there is a neutral body, arguably, that is that adheres that claim, and if there is notice of what the law ought to be, that is deemed to be a justice system. But there is no moral evaluation as to whether the laws that are being applied themselves are legal. And one of the things I stress when I talk to students in, in colleges and, and in high school is that just because a, a law is a law does not mean that it is just or moral. Slavery was legal. I mean, slavery shows up in the Constitution at least three times, right? Uh, no one today would defend slavery as being just, but it was, in fact, legal in the law of the land. And if you happen to be an enslaved person who escaped to the North, the Constitution permitted <laughs> and, and expressly stated that, you know, your your uh, enslavers were able to go recover you, notwithstanding the fact that slavery itself was, was you know, morally um, debased. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Jim Crow, segregation, those things were all codified laws in, in many places. Um, no one would argue that they were just. And so I think if we're, we're going to improve the system, we have to confront that our legal system, although it may be um, uh, better than many, um, it does not necessarily have justice as a criteria or a, an evaluator uh, as to its effectiveness. And we have been comfortable with that for, you know, in America for 400 years and in the UK for much longer. And the question is, is it time for us to revisit that and to think about whether or not laws should have some uh, criteria for them being just as well as being legal? Do you think it goes even more deep and more complex than that into a sort of, I hate to use the phrase culture war, I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but I suppose what I mean is as a lawyer um, in the UK, I see a lot about how amazing our democracy is, how um, we have a fantastic legal system um, compared to you know, list off another set of countries. And I've, I'm sure I've seen that narrative coming out of the US as well, that we have our people in power um, have a sort of an almost patriotic duty to uphold our system and talk about how just and meritocratic it is. And there's a real kind of a job to get over the marketing hype that exists and pick apart people's almost sense of self that these systems are not just, they are not equitable, they are not, they're certainly not racially just. Um, but almost before we get, you know, we've almost got to persuade people to move past the marketing first. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even when you look at the title of the system, the fact that it's even called the criminal justice system, it's marketed mm. in a way that makes you think that justice is right at the heart of um, one of its pursuits. You know, we've got the Ministry of Justice uh, and so on. So we use that word and I think that it sort of, it waters down the value of what it is. 
and we just use it without really being introspective, without really digging into what that means as a pursuit and whether or not it is the law that is pursuing that or if it's the law that follows the ideas of justice that that society evolves around and you know I, th I think it's one of those things that you study a lot at university and it's kind of this really interesting concept at uni and then you go into practice and it sort of falls by the wayside mm -hmm. when you're actually implementing it day to day and I think that one of the things that really um struck me when I was doing like trust and equities um as well as criminal law um at at university was this idea that the law is a reflection of the values that society has. It's it's not yeah. really a, a system that is used to impose those values upon society. So it's always playing catch up. You know, that's why you see the introduction of legislation that then catches up with the movements or the pushes from people at a grassroots level. Uh, you know, it feeds into what um, Carlos was observing around the fact that we had things which were legal at the time then the appetite the moral appetite amongst the population changed and you had things like the abolition movement and so on which pushes for these things to change and then the law changes so that does mean when you think about it the law is constantly behind where people's moral sentiments are actually landing and so it's not this movement for change in uh, on a kind of macro level as i think a lot of us um believe it to be however on the other hand um when you look at the mechanisms of the law and when you look at some of the ways that people use their practices you can see that there are people who are able to incorporate activism and able to incorporate um, modernization and challenges into the way that they practice you know they will look at a, a piece of legislation or they'll look at the code or they'll look at a regulation and they'll say yes but why does it say this and where is the fairness in this and why is this the law and shouldn't we change that um, and you see pushes in those areas um, but again uh, something that always strikes me is you have to have money to <laughs> be able to do that and you have to have time to right. be able to do that which is why i think that the criminal justice system is quite slow at doing that and maybe in the civil system you see it a little bit more so one case it really struck me and i completely completely forget the names of the parties now but it was while i was at uh bar school so it's back in 2011 i remember this heterosexual couple um taking to court the idea that they couldn't have a civil partnership um and at the time i was just like oh my god this is so middle class i can't believe or like why are they bringing this case to court there's so many other things that they could be concentrating on but what they were actually doing was they were challenging this idea that there is this difference in terminology between marriage and civil partnership and the idea that it makes it less accessible to people so if you as a straight couple are able to use your money and your resources to challenge that it then makes it easier for those who belong to the queer community who belong to the other communities that would like to make the same argument from their perspective but you're the test case that does it and then others can follow through uh, but obviously in the criminal justice system where a lot of people rely on legal aid where they are literally facing imprisonment or mm. their freedom there isn't the space for that in in the same way and it calls the question well then who who can push for those changes how do we make sure that the law remains responsive but 
is flexible enough to respond quickly enough so that you reduce the inequitable results that may happen and you reduce the disparities that happen. And I don't know the answer to that. So, Carlos, um, I'm really interested in what Abby has said about kind of who's got a responsibility or an ability to move the pointer on these things. But I think that I have heard from a lot of GCs, and I know that you're a, um, a GC yourself, I've heard a lot of disquiet from GCs about what their role as an ethical leader is. And I would really be interested in your view about what you think the role of the ethical role of lawyers is around this. Well, so what I would say is it's complicated to navigate. Um, there, there is, there is, well, to one degree, I appreciate that I, in, in my capacity, uh, am deemed to speak for the company in many contexts. And so where my views may be uh, more aggressive or different than my client, um, then mm-hmm. um, I need to be sensitive to make sure that that is not confused uh, yeah. as an attorney. We are. We have ethical obligations to the bar. We are officers of the court. We have. We have to remain independent. Meaning that there are times where uh, our jobs provide legal advice to our clients, um, but we are not necessarily to um, become subsumed by our clients because our ultimate responsibility is to the bar. Um, and so I think that charge. Uh, then leads us to have to take positions on ethics uh, and and moral leadership around the law and around the justice systems to varying degrees. I, what I was saying earlier is that I, the reason I became a lawyer is because I grew up in a rural uh, southeastern Virginia community that was principally an African American community uh, that our family had existed on that land for since 1690, and I grew up hearing stories of my great grandmother and my other uh, elders talk about injustices that were occurred, especially racial injustices, both in the legal system and otherwise, or where they felt there was no redress in the legal system because of their race uh, when they were uh, taken advantage of either through property being stolen contractually, or if, uh, you know, uh, loved ones were arrested and accused of crimes that they didn't commit, they felt they had, they had no recourse sitting as a child watching the TV shows Perry Mason, Perry Mason, which was a, a show that was produced in the 1930s or 40s. And, you know, where this lawyer would, you know, he would just come to the aid of those who were in need and he would champion them typically in the criminal system uh, such that, you know, the right outcome justice was actually served. And that inspired me to want to be a lawyer because I wanted to be that kind of champion for those who were voiceless, those who felt helpless. Um, And so to me, um, I can't be a lawyer. I can't be the lawyer that that eight-year-old boy wanted to be if I am not speaking out on issues of justice and ethical leadership, if I'm not challenging my colleagues, my uh, uh, those who I work with, as well as those who look to me uh, for leadership, that they too must have a voice. Um, and so um, I, I, although I appreciate why some and, and, and fidelity to their client 
don't want to get ahead of their client on issues and positions. I do believe that that as individuals, uh, we have an obligation to do more than take up space and to contribute to the conversation. And so, uh, in, in in as many ways as I can, both internally and in my in my when I'm wearing my Dominion Energy hat, as well as externally when I'm just Carlos in Brown Esquire, right? Which I will be, you know, after I someday leave Dominion Energy. Um, you know, I, I attempt to do that. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it, Carlos? Because um, it's it's quite funny how, as a lawyer, our roles, no matter what area of law that we, we practice in, the whole point of being a lawyer is that you are able to explain nuance, that you are able to explain the grey areas, that you're able to navigate um, topics that very often for your clients will be emotionally charged, will be um, difficult for them to put uh, down in black and white or to speak about. Um, but I find it just so fascinating how many members of our profession then stumble around finding the vocabulary and the wording to discuss concepts like justice and equality and actual fairness, um, when really we should be the exact group of people that are able to speak about it in that nuanced, delicate um, way and i think that we are uh, failing um in the fact that we're not really at the forefront of the conversations in a way that we could be and in the way that our training and skill sets should allow us to be no no right i uh, i think i am uh challenged frequently uh by folks who say you know carlos the legal system the justice system has failed us um, and, you know, even as I explained to my, I'll, I'll share a personal story. My, my son, uh, who, you know, is a freshman at Yale, he's home because of the coronavirus. Uh, as the protests began to start, he wanted to go out and protest and with my daughter. And I will admit I had trepidation because in the early stages, the protests were somewhat unwilling. We didn't, they would go into the night and then there would typically be clashes with the police. And of course, as a parent at the end of the day, you're most concerned about your child's safety, mm. notwithstanding the fact that you agree with their sentiment and what they want to do. And in um, that conversation, uh, as I sat a little bit stoic and I did not, Really, I wasn't very articulate. Uh, my wife shook, said, "You know, why are you, why are you so dispassionate right now?" And I said, "Because as a lawyer, I understand that what is happening in these cases where the where you know black men and women are being killed in law enforcement that at the heads of law enforcement, uh, even if they were not engaged in criminal criminal activity and had done no wrong." I could rationalize and explain why under the legal system, these individuals were being exonerated. And, mm. and that, and that, that was a very, um, crushing weight because I'm a part of that system that's yeah. producing yeah. over and over again, unjust results. And Sharon Eiffel, who's the, uh, uh, the executive director of the NAACP, NAACP Legal Defense Fund was in a conversation with some of us uh, sometime thereafter. And she said that, you know, these outcomes 
are making it hard for those of us who are a part of the system, who want to advocate that people trust the system, that the system can work, that people buy into it. Because if the legal system does not produce just results, or I think to correct it, he says, if the justice system never produces a just result, then why should people trust it? And so, so it is incumbent if, if we if we are to maintain this experiment in democracy and and continue to have the consent of the governed and the, and then buy in to the idea that we can mitigate and manage and work through uh, these processes such that all people black white yellow green uh, are entitled to and, and are able to flourish you know under our legal system, then we have to make sure that that legal system produces just results. And every time one of these cases happens, and and the individual that is the the uh, the, the perpetrator, whether intentional or otherwise, is exonerated, that the confidence in that system is, is, is atrophied, and our credibility is compromised. So it is incumbent on, on you and I, Avi, and others of the mm. bar to to really push the system to make sure that we get the results that continue to suggest um, that people ought to trust it. I agree completely, hundred percent. And I think the one of the one of my takeaways from this period is that it is so much harder for a lawyer to be truly anti-racist or and to be a true kind of like warrior for justice than it is for the average person because we have so much more knowledge and we have so much more accessibility to the power dynamics um and the Mm. kind of like the operations of these systems that (laughs) The less that we do, the more we are complicit in the system uh, creating those results and happening in the way that it does. And, and there was something that you said, Carlos, which really spoke to me, and it's something that I say very regularly to my friends and to my colleagues, which is that the more that I practice, even though I only defend, for example, but the more that I practice, the more that I feel that I'm a cog in a wheel of a system that ultimately can produce very unfair results. And that mm. weirdly, the better I do my job, the more I'm legitimizing the system because I can walk away from it saying, well, I've made sure that all of these processes were properly followed. I made sure that I was this check and this balance on the processes. And therefore the result that my client received was the right results in this particular set of circumstances, whether they're found guilty or not guilty, Uh, but that's not enough. And you have to actually call out what those issues are. And and going back to what we were saying in the middle of the conversation, um, you know, the law needs people to be engaged so that they can challenge the system. For the law to move on, there needs to be a, a, a push for reform. But how do how does the average person, the average member of public, know what's happening in the justice system if we as players in that system don't make them aware? Uh, so, you know, you look at just the way that things are reported, there's so much information out there at the moment and there's so many different agendas out there at the moment that the way that things are um, displayed in the media, the way that things are reported in the media, it can really serve 
an agenda here or there. But the beauty of being a lawyer is that we are people who are officers of the court. We are people who are trained to set out facts. We are people who are trained to disseminate information and to put forward arguments. Um, and if we were to use that skill set to speak more publicly about what we see day to day in our roles, if we were to just set it out in black and white so that just the level of public awareness and public engagement around these matters was heightened, then I think the movements would follow. People would be more aware of the fact that we have, in the UK, for example, proportionately, we actually have more of an issue uh, with the imprisonment of black men than the US. But you, would, you wouldn't really know that from the way that we speak about racial inequality in the UK. Very often when we get to speaking about the extremes of it, we turn stateside because we think that it's not mm. as bad over here. But actually, as lawyers, we're exposed to the fact that there is proportionately a similar issue over here. Um, I think black men are four times more likely to go to prison than their white counterparts in the UK, whereas in the US, it's around 2.5 to three times more likely. So we actually have a higher problem over here than they do stateside. But it would be very simple if we were engaged in speaking about those things, setting out the facts, if we were more engaged on a political local level, talking to our MPs, making them aware about things, um, just talking to members of the public, encouraging people to come to court, to watch court processes, to be involved in what's happening, speaking about uh, bits of legislation, uh, procedure, where we see things going wrong, then we would, I think, be doing so much more just by being more open about what happens. And it's a tricky position, I think, for the average lawyer, because you're sort of taught very often, I don't know if you guys have taught the same thing in the US, Carlos, but in the UK, and particularly in the bar, the tradition is that we get on with our work, and that the work speaks for itself. We don't talk about money, we don't talk openly mm -hmm. about live cases. In general, we're quite reticent to speak to the media openly about things that happen because we don't want to be seen as being political um, yeah. and we want to be seen as people who are driven by this purpose to just represent our clients but maybe what we need to look at is how are we truly representing clients how are we truly representing witnesses if we know that we're operating within systems that aren't really producing the just and fair results that we need to and the impact of people like for example the secret barrister just speaking <laughs> very openly yes. about what we see every single day as criminal practitioners it's amazing to see the response and to see the changes that have been brought about just from that engagement um so yeah i think we sort of get caught up in our helplessness and don't realize that it's as simple as having conversations and just telling people what's going on and that can change things very radically we need to be advocates and to challenge the law and i and you know one of the role models is thurgood marshall where every time he went to a courtroom and made an argument or as we went through the whole entire civil rights movement rosa parks and others they were essentially breaking laws uh and, and engaging in civil disobedience to challenge the uh, immorality uh and injustice of segregation and and notwithstanding the fact that uh, the argument that, you know, separate but equal um, was unconstitutional mm -hmm. was probably an argument that in the U.S., you know, uh, some 
judges would have thrown out and said, that's sanctionable. But there were leaders that had vision, Charles Hamilton Houston and others that had vision to say, no, we can make the law better. The law can be a tool to advance and improve and heal the injustices of our society. But we have to be engaged and be willing to lean into it to do that. And I think there's, there are, and I challenge the lawyers that work for me corporately as we're dealing with legal issues, is don't just look at what is there, look at what should be there. Mm-hmm. And if we need to be the point of the sphere to challenge the law to make it better, such that we can be provide better services and better outcomes to our customers, then we should, do, we should be open to doing that, mm-hmm. as opposed to, to simply being automatons, or as you say, cogs in a wheel, where we are simply, you know, stamping and, and filing processes without ever thinking about whether or not those processes are yielding the right outcomes for the society we want to live in. I think that's a really, a really good note to end on. I think that uh, you're absolutely right that the legal profession needs to almost re-engage with the core of ethics that perhaps they had when they were at law school. Um, And I suppose that the final thing that I would sort of say is that there is no neutral in an unjust system. Yeah. If you think you are maintaining neutrality in an unjust system, then you're not. I've really enjoyed listening um, to both of you and I've really appreciated learning from your wisdom in this um, as someone who did not come through um, criminal barrister uh, or solicitor training particularly. So it's been fabulously interesting. Um, thank you both. Thank you so much. It's, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the cross-examination for the hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it. And I hope you'll join me for our exciting upcoming episodes. If you like, please give us a rating, review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be alerted to all the new episodes as they come out. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.